Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand, please, and affirm the promise that relates to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Amen. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. And so allow your inheritance in the name of the blood of the covenant to be lifted to heights higher than us and to break all burden and sin that binds us. In the name of Jesus Christ, may in this place be cursed as before all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, stagnancy, ignorance. All of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people. And stand, Lord, on the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness. May your saints be clothed in your salvation, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and allow us to find your holy countenance. We thank you that this service is presented by Apostle Arkady in your divine arms, and we ask you to continue to lead it with your high and uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. May you be blessed. Please be seated. The Place of Holy Scripture Matthew chapter 5, verses 45-48 So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is a place of scripture that is familiar to us, in which is contained the unsearchable inheritance of Christ, the depth of the vision and the wisdom of God, which God reveals to us at the level of which we dedicate ourselves. And the higher is the level of our dedication, the higher is the level of the revelation. And so the sermon of Apostle Arkady called to perfection. We already know that this promise commandment is written in the book of Matthew and is presented to us in a series of sermons of Apostle Arkady and is the inheritance of saints of all time and is addressed by Christ to his disciples exclusively to his disciples. And therefore those that do not accept the authority of the person sent by God have no relation to the inheritance of this commandment, and they will likely never have a relation to it. And it was during one of our funeral services that pastor spoke a word, and there was a lot of people from surrounding churches surrounding congregations, and after the sermon, there is one person that came up and asks, where is this brother from? How well? He spoke the words so well. I said, this is Pastor Arkady, but because he didn't see him for a long time, he grew dismayed, and his reaction totally changed in the moment. That's why this word 
this word that we hear continually, that those that do not acknowledge the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of the commandments. And this is not just him alone. This is the multitude of those that are called. Therefore, Apostle Paul says, knowing this, that we think the word we think, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It moves in us according to the church, according to the truth. And Apostle Peter Again writes, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And pastor says that, based on this kind of definition, the true will of God in scripture are not through those people that are led by their intellect, but those led by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, interpreting God's will belongs specifically to those led by the power of the mind of Christ. And with regard to the fulfillment of this commandment, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? And specifically, we have been studying that the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart accepted by us in the broken tablets of testimony in which we with the law died to the law so that we could live for the one who died and rose so that in this manner we could receive affirmation of our salvation in the new tablets in the format of the law of the spirit of life in order to give God the basis to give us the promise not through the former law, but through the righteousness of faith, just as he had given it to Abraham and his seed. Romans 4.13 For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We have noted that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God or our obedience to the preached word spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. We know that the faith of God is that word that we hear. So it is one that is anointed, the preached word that we hear, because faith is from hearing the word of God. And as we know, faith is not an emotion, it's not a feeling, but it's information. And this information is the revelation that we hear. Because faith does not occur from reading. Faith occurs from the anointing word which we hear. If this word is not anointed by the Holy Spirit and is simply intellectual and human, then it is not faith. Faith that could be placed in our hearts. And when we place this word, then this is going to be the rock of the human mind, which is going to resist the true anointed word. 
As it is written in Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of warfare are not fleshly, but God destroys these strongholds. And our faith, our faith is ordinary obedience and irrefutable obedience and fulfillment of the faith of God, the information of God. This is contained the essence of our heart and our hearing of the Word of God. And to prepare our heart to be prepared. As soon as I, Pastor says, to prepare our heart so that it is ready, as soon as I hear the Word, I know I will fulfill it. And a person should not say, well, what if God will tell me something that I'm not capable of doing? Never will God say something which you will not be capable of doing, and never will He ask something of you that is not His. All that He will ask of you will be His belonging, which is in you, and you yourself are His belonging. And the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who have clothed themselves in the dignity of a disciple, which has allowed them to obey the order of God, cooperation with which He sends us His word through the mouths of the messengers of God. Therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God in the words of the messenger of God. And in a certain format, we have already looked at six signs according to which we should judge and test that we are the sons of peace, and therefore, if we are the sons of God. And we have stopped to study and look at the seventh sign. The seventh sign by which we must judge of our partaking to the sons of peace is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or selective love of God. Because the holy love of God means selective. Because holiness, it separates what is pure from what is impure, and what is holy from what is unholy. Because that which is holy is always pure, and that which is pure is not always holy. And as we know, all sheep are pure, but not all are holy. Because holy is considered that sheep that is separated for being a sacrifice on the altar. And only when this sheep is separated for a sacrificial offering, then this sheep is considered holy. And in order to take this sheep from being a pure animal, it is necessary for her to coincide to a pure standard, for her to be without blemish, to be healthy without blemish. A sheep that is pure but with a blemish cannot be holy and offered on the altar. Therefore, we are called to know what kind of love we are talking about here. We are not talking about tolerant love that loves all without question, not understanding that that which is holy is that which is selective. It loves only that which God loves and hates that which God hates. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15 but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful.
We were called in one body, so this love can only be evident in the body of Christ, in one body in relation to one another. And here we're not talking about showing our love to everyone, but first and foremost to our own by faith, to those that are found in our service, in our movement, to those that are found in a theocratical order of God, and those that are the living organism in the body of Christ. According to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, if we are clothed in the selective love of God. So, we are called to know the properties and nature of God's love. In the selective love of God, which is the atmosphere of the peace of God, are hidden the good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals of God that are called to build unique and peaceful relationships between God and His children. Christ had loved the church and gave Himself for her in order to wash her through the Word, that she may be holy and blameless before Him in love. You see, whom Christ has loved. He has loved the church. The bride of Christ is always the church, and the church is not always the bride, because the church means the congregation of peoples, or those that are called to salvation, and the bride is the chosen out of these saved, because not all called are going to want to pay the price and not all that are called are going to place the deposit of their salvation into circulation. Therefore, all those that are called, only the chosen will inherit salvation. As it is written, many are called, but few are chosen. And Christ said that these people that are called, that have come to God, but have refused to submit to the orders of the covenant, who have refused to study this covenant, who have refused to be in the order of God, and to fulfill this order, they will be, they cannot be saved. Therefore, whenever in church someone sits with their own head, or rather says, I don't agree with this, this is not written in the word, then of course in this kind of church God cannot dwell. They have a completely different Christ, a different Messiah. God dwells only in a church where there are not many heads, but one, Christ. And this Christ is represented by one person, pastor, by one apostle of the movement. This we must understand according to scripture, in order to understand what love is and where love is. Love is only in the body of Christ in which there is one head. And this, and yet, democracy was implemented in the church, where each one has their own head, their own opinion, their own understanding. But this head is not given for it to tell or say what is good and what is evil. The head cannot define what is good and what is evil in every man because the definition of good and evil comes from revelation of above that is given to a specific person who is going to, according to scripture, reveal it and show it to us. 
If we have the order of God, then we with ease are going to agree in our heart that this truly is so, and yes, it is. Amen. In Scripture, the character of the selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit through the preached word of the apostles and prophets in the light of seven unearthly virtues. This is virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly love, and love. So, all flows, one flows from the other. These are the components of the selective love of God. This is one fruit. These are not separate fruits, but they are components of the fruit of righteousness, components of the fruit of selective love. And in a certain format, we already looked at the manifestation, the selective love of God in the virtues of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience. And we have stopped to study the virtue of the love of God in the mystery of her godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And all of this, God has done through the fruit of His bride. This is she that has done all of this to show in heaven, on earth, and in hell how wise God is so that she may be known, upright Apostle Paul through the church, so that she may be known. And despite the fact that we think that angels have some kind of greater knowledge than us, but this is not so, they have other kinds of knowledges, and they are found in them. But the knowledge of God as we have, they do not have. They receive this knowledge through us, through the church, through the chosen remnants of God who have in their hearts Umim and Urim. Because each of us is a child of God. Angels are not children of God. They are servants and we are the children of God. And we, by nature, are equal to God. And when we begin to grow, then the genetic seed that we have accepted begins to reveal itself. And they see in our character, our actions, and our proclamations, the wisdom of God that comes from the genetics of God. And through this, they can know the knowledge of God. They have combined themselves, united themselves with the church, so that they may know the God whom created Him, whom they have never seen. No one has ever seen God the only Son. He has been allowed to be seen by those people who were born of Him and who have cleansed their heart. As it is written, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we can say, well, the angels also have a pure heart, clean heart. Yes, but they are servants. They have not seen them. For the cherubims of glory that are found above the Ark of the Covenant, they cover their faces with two wings in order to not see the throne of grace. Because if they were to see the throne of grace, they would be destroyed. And the throne of grace is 
the bride of the Lamb. It is here where people receive salvation. It is here where grace moves. It is here where there is the place of God where He dwells. And I would like to turn to the following place of Scripture where Isaac blessed Jacob. When he was blessed, he sent him to Mesopotamia to choose a wife and told him not to take the daughters of of Canaan. And Jacob listened to his mother and his father and went to Haran. He went to Mesopotamia. And Jacob came from Bathsheba and went to Haran and came to this place and remained there to, uh, to sleep because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones one of the stones from that place and placed it for him to sleep on and he laid at that place and he saw in his dream a ladder a ladder from earth to heaven and the angels of God that were ascending and descending along this ladder and the Lord was standing upon it and saying I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and God of Isaac fear not for the land that you are laying on I will give to you and your descendants and your descendants shall be as the sand of the earth, and you will spread to the east and to the west, and in you all of the nations, and in your seed all of the tribes shall be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you everywhere you may go, and I will return to you this land, for I shall not forsake you until I fulfill that, that which I have spoken to you. Jacob then woke up from his sleep and said, Truly, the Lord is present in this place, and I had not known this. And he said, How frightening is this place? This is none other than the house of God. These are the gates of heaven. And again, I will selectively read from Deuteronomy certain places of Scripture. Here are the commandments and laws that the Lord God has given to teach you so that you may behave in the land in which you go so that you can have it. In this, if we strive to fulfill all these commandments, and this will be our righteousness. The place that the Lord your God chooses, turn to it and go to it and bring all of your offerings to it and all of your sacrifices, and the offerings of your hands, and your vows, and your free will offerings. There, or rather, on that place which the Lord will choose. You shall not do that which you do here, that which he thinks is correct. And again, another place of scripture in Deuteronomy. Verse 13, hurry to bring your offerings upon every place that you shall see, but on that place that the Lord shall choose. How do we know and how do we define that this place, that this is that place which the Lord has chosen? The Lord chooses a person and endows him with his properties. 
representing the fatherhood of God. And when he selects a person and establishes him, this is that place which the Lord chooses and upon which we are able to come to bring our offerings, our prayers, there where we are able to receive all that is necessary where God teaches us and where He instructs us and where we may grow and come to the full measure of the stature of Christ. As Solomon had prayed when he built the temple and he prayed, Let your eyes, Lord, be upon this temple day and night, upon this place which you have said, My name shall be there. Here, the prayer that your servant shall pray upon this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they will play when they will pray at this place. Hear it from heaven and have mercy. And with regard to this factor, it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions. With what characteristics does Scripture endow the godliness of God and man? What purpose is godliness called to fulfill in the relationship of God with man and man with God? What conditions are necessary to fulfill to fulfill for our godliness to collaborate with the godliness of God? And by what sign should we define that our godliness truly collaborates with the godliness of God? And we have looked at the first three questions and have stopped to study the fourth, the essence of the fourth question, the results, by what signs? The first sign was to be clouds of the Lord or to be led by the Holy Spirit. The second sign had allowed God to bring us from the Bring us, and today we will look at the third sign by which we must test that in showing the selective love of God, our godliness cooperates with the godliness of God. And this is by the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalms chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Evidence that God is our shepherd in this Psalm of David are four components. This is, the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. Second, the Lord leads me beside still waters. Third, the Lord restores my soul. Fourth, the Lord leads me in the paths of righteousness. And 
God cannot lead a person along the path of righteousness against man's will if we are not led by the Holy Spirit. If a person is led by his own mind or whatever else he may be led by and he thinks that he's being led by the Holy Spirit, then he is in delusion. And to test and weigh ourselves on the scales of justice to see if we have these components should be done by the presence of four other components that are discovered when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is, we will fear no evil, because God is with us. Second, the Lord's rod and staff will comfort us. Third, God has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And fourth, God has anointed our head with oil, and our cup runs over. We have already studied the first three evidences by which we could define that the Lord is our shepherd. And we have stopped to study the next four signs that confirm the previous four signs. Four signs presented in the time of our walk through the valley of the shadow of death is called to affirm and ratify the four signs that we had previously mentioned that the Lord truly is our shepherd. The time of passage through the valley of the shadow of death is the time of taking off the old man when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, calling the non-existent as existent. You see, taking off the old man with his works, this is that time in which we walk the valley of the shadow of death. And so, quickly we'll remember the essence of the first result that was already the subject of our study, and then we will take a look at looking at the next result. And the first result, or the sign, that is called to serve for us as affirmation or evidence of the above four signs telling us that the Lord is our shepherd was comprised of the fact that we will fear no evil for the Lord will dwell with us. I will quickly remind you where pastor provides us seven definitions to give God the basis to protect us from evil. First, it is necessary to discipline in ourselves a conduct in which we do not love for money. Second, this is to cry out to God for help. Third, this is to not fear men. Fourth, it is necessary to not fear that which carnal people fear, but to hallow the Lord because He is our fear and He is our, he is our trembling. Fifth, it is necessary to not render evil for evil to anyone and to keep our lips from evil. Sixth, it is necessary to not fear those who kill the body, but to fear the one who is able to save. And seventh, it is necessary to rejoice in who God is for us, what He has done for us in Christ Jesus, and who we are to God in Christ Jesus. And so the second result of us walking through the valley of the shadow of death that is called to serve as affirmation that the Lord is our shepherd will be comprised 
of the fact that the Lord's rod and staff will comfort us or will serve as our comfort. As it is written, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. From this it follows that the rod and staff of God have a beneficial effect on the children of God. The level of the beneficial effect of the rod and staff of God is equal to the level of the severity of God that is expressed in the retribution of His anger on those who fell from His grace. Romans chapter 11 verses 20 through 23 Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And in Hebrew, the meaning contained in the rod and staff of God discovers itself in God's care, in which He has already provided in advance for us everything necessary for us to enter into the unexplored inheritance of Christ represented in the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ. And the rod of God, there are so many meanings behind this word. So many definitions of the rod of God. This is a cane, a spear, rod, staff, help, support, trust, scepter, glory, mouth, tongue, word, faith of God, the pedigree branch, the knee, tribe, family. And so we will look at the first purpose of the rod of God as his staff. It is one of the figurative names and virtues of the Lord. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the bro of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. The name of God in the dignity of Rod, in all of its interpretations, speaks of God's infinite and sovereign authority in the physical and spiritual dimension. From this it follows that if we are not familiar or are poorly familiar with how to cooperate with the sovereign authority of God contained in the dignity of His fortress, we will never come to power over the magnified fate we are called to by God. I will remind you one of the meanings of fortress. One of the meanings of the name of God fortress is defined in scripture as the place upon which a man can know God. So practically the portion in the name of God fortress is the place upon which God dwells, in the limits of which we are able to know God and be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven. It is specifically 
in the fortress of God that dwells and it dwells in three dimensions in heaven, in the sanctuary, which is the chosen remnant of God, and a humble and contrite heart of a person. Second, the rod of God as his staff is presented as one of the definitions that comes from the word of God emanating from the lips of God that is called to serve as comfort and support to man. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. You see, the rod of an almond tree, or the branch of an almond tree, represented the word of God, over which God was vigilant, and we know that he is vigilant over his word only in the temple of our body. Because the temple of God is the body of saints, the church, and he has magnified his word above all his name. And when will he magnify when we will place the law of God in a conscience that is cleansed of dead works, when we lay in there the teaching of Christ, comprised of twelve foundations, then God will be able to magnify His word in our bodies. Third, we are looking at the rod of God as a scepter of God. In the ancient days, it was one of the symbols of those who carried authority, defining the main deity that man worshipped. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Why did Jacob, before his death, leaned on top of his staff? For Jacob was not an adulterer, was not an idolater, because his staff was the rod of God. If his staff would not have become the rod of God, he would not have leaned on top of it. For Moses, his staff became the staff of God when he threw it, then he, this meant he lost his soul. The staff is our soul that has been lost in the death of the Lord Jesus and then gained in it. These are our pure lips that proclaim the faith of God. That is why Jacob leaned on top of his staff. He submitted to the faith of God. This kind of worship points to the fact that Jacob, in the subject of his staff, cooperated with the staff of God on the conditions of God. Considering, however, that the cobra was the main deity of Egypt that determined its royal power, the top of the golden scepter of the pharaoh was made in the shape of the head of a cobra. This was the greatest deity in Egypt, the cobra. Pharaoh's Staff was a cobra. This was a symbol of authority. Moses had a staff that was in the form of a cobra. And when he threw his staff 
a snake a, it turned into a snake and Moses or, and he was told to take it by the tail and it would then become this, the staff of God there is a difference between a cunning serpent and a wise serpent why is a serpent wise because his wisdom is contained in the fact that he closes one ear with his tail and the other he places and leans to the ground so that he does not hear the sound of the temptress. He has the deafness of Christ so that he does not hear the words of the temptresses and what the pseudo-leaders say that distort Holy Scripture. He hears only the truth. Therefore, we must understand that a serpent is created by God and this creature is not cunning but it is wise. And, but the serpent of the Garden of Eden, this is a cunning serpent. He lost wisdom. Cunningness is not the power of God. Therefore, Pharaoh had worshipped only one serpent, the cunning one. Moses worshipped the other serpent, the wise one. So, having and being filled with the wisdom of God, and God said, Now this is my staff. Now you will do wonders with it. In fact... These are our lips, your lips, that proclaim the faith of God. Fourth, the rod of God as a scepter of God served as a symbol of favor that gave life. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. The extension of the ruler's golden scepter upon someone was a manifestation of his favor toward this person. In Hebrew, or rather I will first read in Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. In Hebrew, the phrase in relation to the slain lamb, eat it like this, let your staffs be in your hands, means to appeal or stretch your staff in the direction of God. And therefore, to hold or to keep our staff in our hands while we eat Passover meant to direct our favor to God and thereby express our gratitude to him so that he in response could answer us with his gratitude as it is written and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace John chapter 1 verse 16 so when we turn to God he turns to us when we show our grace our thanksgiving to him he turns to us because one of the meanings of the word grace means favor thanksgiving therefore god will never show his grace to a person who has not shown him his grace his gratitude person must reveal his favor turn to him face him how do we turn to you how do we turn to you israel had asked and the Lord answered through the prophet Malachi, Bring to me all the tithes into the storehouse. This is how we demonstrate our thanksgiving and turn our faces to Him. When we begin 
to honor him and not trying to receive this not try to receive something for ourselves James 4 8 draw near to God and he will draw near to you fifth we are looking at the meaning the rod of God as his measuring rod it was one of the instruments for measurement Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 3-5 There was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. There was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, Bronze means that this man coincided to the standard of righteousness because he tested himself. He weighed himself on the scales of justice. And this man and Revelation are the apostles of Christ. These are not angels. This is an image. Therefore, the rod of God, the measuring rod in the lips of the apostles of the Lord had measured the temple, how much it coincided to the standard of righteousness. So when we hear the word of God, this word measures not just the apostle, but us as well. And pastor says, before preaching, he says, I have measured and have weighed myself and only then I can speak to you. And simultaneously, I begin, I begin to still measure myself along with you all. Due to the fact that the rod was made from four to six cubits in length, it was used as a measuring rod as well. Number six, the name of God as his rod and his staff in the hand of man is the ability to control our tongue. You see, to have a staff in our hand is to control our tongue. And in order to confirm this statement that to have our rod in our hands is to control our tongue, we will pay attention to the staff of Moses and the disciples of Christ in order to know what specific role in their life was given to their rod? And how did they relate and use its capabilities? First, when considering the rod of Moses, which has become the standard for our imitation, it should be borne in mind that before Moses could partake of the Passover of the Lord, God did remarkable things with regard to the rod of Moses. And second, Due to the fact that the people obeyed Moses, God imputed and transformed the properties of the rod of Moses to all the rods belonging to his people. And the Lord said to Moses, What is in your hand? He said, A rod. And the Lord said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. 
We know that the tail of any reptile is their rudder, which determines their direction. And therefore, in whose hands is the steering of any nature or any structure, that thing controls this nature. After this event, God told Moses to go to Egypt and take in his hand the serpent which became a rod in his hand. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. Exodus chapter 4 verse 17 which Moses had done as he was told. Exodus chapter 4 verse 20 Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. You see, he placed them, set them on a donkey. A donkey is an image of his body. The wife is the image of her soul, of his soul, and sons is his fruit. This is all an image. This was in the literal sense then, but here we are looking at these images. You see, at first this was the staff of Moses. But when did it become the staff of God? When he threw it and found out that his staff, in fact, was a serpent. Then God said, take it by the tail. This is the rudder, the wheel, because our lips must be controlled. Lips themselves are not a wheel for us. Someone must control this wheel. And now let us turn our attention to how the same rod, which at first was human and was called human, after the events described, began to be called the rod of God. And therefore, having tasted the Passover of the Lord without our staff in our hands, or without controlling our tongue, we will unworthily eat the Passover of the Lord, that is, we will condemn ourselves. When it is said, not discerning the Lord's body, then this means that we are partaking of it in condemnation. Why? Because we do not correctly discern. To discern of the body of the Lord is to have meek lips. This is to control our lips that we do not eat in condemnation. Let your staff be in your hand. If there is no staff, then we don't cannot worthily partake of the Passover. Because without controlling our lips, it is impossible to collaborate with God, neither in the release of oneself from curse, nor partaking to the inheritance of the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ. A person who does not control his lips loses his sovereign rights, and therefore he will be incapable of collaborating with God in representing his interests. That is why Jesus, sending his disciples to preach there where he wanted to go, to represent the interests of the kingdom of heaven, and he gave him this commandment. And he said, 
do not take anything on the road except for one rod. Mark 6, 8 Why did God tell them this? So that they go only with one rod? Yes. This is an image. Because only pure lips. All of that which God will do for us, He will do through our lips. All will be done through our lips. The thoughts that are formed, they will form in Tarshish ships in our mind, which has been renewed by the spirit of our mind. And only then, our pure lips will be able to speak these words. First, our mind must be renewed, and only then we can have pure lips that's needed to have been cleansed. Seventh, the name of God as his rod and staff is called to bring us into the bond of the covenant to purge the rebels from among us. When will God lead us? Through the staff and the bonds of the covenant. When God leads us, he is going to separate the rebels from among us. Ezekiel 20, verses 37-38, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell. They shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God has brought out the people of Israel from Egypt, but they did not enter into the land of Israel. Only Joshua and Caleb and no one else. But the fruit of these people, their sons went in there, their sons and daughters born in the wilderness that did not groan and did not want the food that their fathers wanted. They had cried in the wilderness, their fathers did. When a person goes without desire, with a lack of desire, then service is difficult for him. And he thinks, if I don't go, then people are going to think that I am not spiritual or am spiritual because I need to go, I need to do something. This is when a person goes with a lack of desire. But when he goes with trembling, that today I am going to service. I am going to be in the presence of the Lord. I am going to find comfort here. Here the Lord is. What is He going to tell me today? What will He show me? What will He reveal? Here I will gain knowledge of God. Here God begins to pass something along to us. Here we grow ourselves and unite ourselves to the body of Christ. But when, I repeat, when people don't think about this, and when they don't discern about the body of Christ, then of course they were tormented. And it was very bitter for Moses. And God said, I cannot look at them any longer. Moses said, Lord, I can't. They are crying in their tents. Moses saw them crying. 
and then God gave them meat and then began to destroy them, purge them, when they began to eat it. And the children were, they did not eat of this meat, only their fathers had eaten it. Why did they not eat it? Because for them, they didn't like the smell of this and it was unpleasant to them. This was the fruit of their spirit, and the fruit of the spirit eats of the manna of heaven, the bread of God, the word of God that comes from the mouth of God. Therefore, for them, it was wild that their fathers that gave birth to them, they wanted something else. That's why God had purged them 20 and over, and 20 and younger were not because they were the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. They did not have the desire to eat this food. They rejoiced. Each time, they had to gather early, and together, they saw that manna would appear, and as soon as the sun set, the dew disappeared, and together with the dew, disappeared the manna and they gathered it and then they came they baked it they ate it and its taste was like cake with honey eighth the name of god as his staff is called to be one of the weapons for defense and weapons of attack in the ancient world, due to the length and, constru- length and construction of the shepherd's staff, in the event of an attack by any beast or person, on a shepherd or on his herd, such a staff could serve as a weapon for the shepherd, both for defense and for attack. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The wicked in our land is an image of reigning sin that lives in our body in the face of the old man with his works, behind which stand the organized powers of darkness. As the staff of Moses, as a subject of his meek tongue, thanks to which God created wonders in order to deliver his nation from Egyptian slavery and lead them into the promised land, as well as our meek tongue, which is called the staff of God, with these God will shepherd us to adopt our bodies with the redemption of Christ. Micah chapter 7 verse 14 Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. To shepherd our sheep means to shepherd our thinking in solitude with God, by which is meant the mystery of the divine darkness in which God favors to dwell. And, of course, there exists a large, a big difference between the property of the rod of God and the rod of man. First, to be a human rod 
means to belong to oneself, to rely on oneself, and to depend on oneself, which means to be a servant of the flesh. And to be a servant of God means to belong to God, to trust in God, to depend on God, to be led by the Holy Spirit, which means to have the dignity of a servant of the Lord or to be a servant of righteousness. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Second, to be a human rod means to possess the properties and characteristics of a fallen cherub. And to be the rod of God means to possess the property and characteristics of God in the face of a new man born of God, Jesus Christ, who is constantly updated in knowledge in the image of God who created us. Colossians 3, verse 10, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Third, to be a human rod means to judge oneself from the position of one's human intellectual capabilities. Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. You see how dangerous it is to say, I have my own head. I have my own head so that I can understand what is good and what is evil. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, their own understanding, their own rod. And God calls this the spirit of harlotry that has caused him to stray and they have played the harlot against their God. And to be a rod of God means to judge oneself from the position of the capabilities of God. Psalms 23 verse 4 Yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fourth, to be a human rod means to be guided and led by our lusts. And to be the rod of God means to be guided and led by the Holy Spirit. It was impossible for the human rod to do the true miracles and signs of God because being human, he could be activated solely by the will of man. While the rod of God could be used exclusively by the will of God, not when man wants, but when God wants, when God reveals it. And thus to represent exclusively only of the properties, interests, and possibilities of God. When Moses began to call out to God, only then God spoke and said, Take the staff, take your rod, and hit the water, and it will be separated. If Moses would not have received this in Revelation, if he would have taken the wa- he would have hit the water, 
this would not have been the rod of God, it would have been his own rod. We cannot, with the rod of God, move or act when we want or how we want. We must wait for the revelation of God in our spirit. We must have Urim and Tumim. We must have truth in the heart, in the dignity of the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ, and Urim in the dignity of the Holy Spirit who uncovers this truth in the heart. When the Holy Spirit tells us to do this or that, and when we have this, then we will be able to do it. But we can't do it according to our own desire, but only when God speaks of it, and just as God speaks of it. That's why the rod of God could be used only according to the will of God and fulfill the interests of God. A person that has thrown or cast his rod is a man who has lost his soul in the subject of his vain or sinful life, inherited from his fathers, which in practice means that such a person refused to fulfill the desires of his flesh and thoughts or killed the earthly members. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, covetousness, which is idolatrous. This is when money controls a person, when he uses the principles of faith for material benefits. A person who takes a snake by the tail in the subject of the soul rejected by him gets the opportunity to control his lips or judge himself from the perspective of Scripture, because of which he receives the ability to represent the interests of God and overcome in himself any opposition to the will of God. The rod of God will comfort us when God measures the temple of our body, our altar in the subject of our motives and our worship taking place in the temple of our body, how much it meets the requirements of spirit and truth. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Revelation 11.1 1. We have talked about how, despite the fact that apostles have this measuring rod, and we also have this measuring rod, as soon as an apostle or someone who has the powers of the fatherhood of God speaks the word, this rod is passed on, and we take it in our lips and we say, let it be to me according to your word. And this rod of the apostle becomes our rod. So the apostle, for the apostle, this became the staff of God, and then in us it also becomes the same. We, having received this measuring rod, we begin to measure ourselves, how closely we coincide with this truth. In different places of scripture, synonyms of the word rod are also mentioned, sometimes as terms such as staff, measuring rod, and scepter. In this regard, the meaning of the rod in scripture is ambiguous.
in the place of the first resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ was the throne room of the Egyptian monarchy. So these two rods fought with one another, the rod of Moses and the rod of Pharaoh, or rather the So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. The Egyptians symbolized symbolized people born again, but only carnal, who are usually at different stages of development. Pharaoh symbolized the mind of a carnal person, which all carnal people are guided by. At the initial stage of their development, carnal people as a rule always transfer their authority to spiritual people, as happened in the case of Pharaoh and Joseph. But when the time of infancy ended, a man did not pay the price for leaving infancy, then his priorities shifted and he began to see himself as spiritual, and therefore he began to resist the descendants of Joseph. The rods of the sorcerers symbolize the power of resistance of the wicked people and the power of their wicked thinking, which we have to meet and overcome with the power of the rod of God. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-9 through 9. Who are these people who are corrupted by their mind and ignorant in faith? How do we need to confront and defeat them? Those corrupted by the mind are guides of sin and drunkards, consuming wine and depending on wine. The ignorant in faith are people who are inferior, incapable, unfit, perverse, unworthy, despicable, and miserable. The place of the second resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ are the waters of the Nile River. Exodus chapter 7 verse 20 And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. In scripture, the waters of a river symbolize the Holy Spirit in the movement or essence of the faith teaching. And therefore, the rod of God in the hands of Aaron symbolized the movement of the Holy Spirit. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 7, verses 38-39 The Nile River, in this case, which for the Egyptians was a deity, in which was hit by the rod of God, symbolizes the unclean spirit speaking under the name of the Holy Spirit, as well as the movement of error and false doctrine. 
The place of the third resistance to the will of God that disrupts the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ were the frogs in the waters of Egypt. Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And another place of scripture, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons. This is false teachings that come. These are false apostles, false prophets, false shepherds, false teachers who distort scripture. And there are many of these. And here we see who the frogs are. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the kings of all the earth, here we are not referring to the president and the kings of this earth. Here we are talking about people who understand the significance of controlling their emotions. Control their emotions, their tongue, by the power of the mind and by the power of the will. They direct their emotions. These kings decided that they have their own head. And they do this with their own energy, their own strength. We know that sportsmen, athletes, they use the power of their will, the power of their manifestation. They reject many things in order to achieve something. But here we are talking about, in the body of Christ, those that are called, many will become these kinds of kings, but they have not become priests and have not become prophets in order to receive the adoption of their bodies the redemption of Christ. For this, One needs to have the dignity of a king, priest, and prophet, but they have only the dignity of a king. And therefore, that's why this delusion came to them in the format of these frogs. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked when they see his shame. We are talking about these kings. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Psalm Revelation chapter 16 verses 13 through 16 and Psalm 78 45. He sent frogs which destroyed them. You see, this teaching that a person accepts, thinking that it is from the Holy Spirit, And I think that our time has come to a conclusion and we will stop and end at this and we will bend our knees, bow our heads in prayer and may the Lord bless us and our prayer. Amen.
Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for this blessed place that you have chosen for the worship of your holy name. We thank you for this presence in this place where you teach, where you instruct, where you correct us so that we can come to the full measure of the stature of Christ, to perfect, being perfect men. And we can enter or step into this through your great gifts that you have placed in the church because only through them we can grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ. We thank you that this place is the place where you dwell. This is the place of your dwelling, a place of your fortress, because here we can know you. And here we can be fertilized by the seed of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you, Lord. You give us this revelation through your word, your preached word, that we have understood that to have the rod in our hands is to have pure lips so that we are capable of worthily partaking in your Passover, in your supper because to discern of the body of the Lord is to have meek and pure lips we thank you Lord for this for this revelation for this knowledge May your name be magnified and praised. We thank you for this word. That we heard this living word, anointed word, because only it can give us life. Only it acts and moves and produces your work in your chosen remnants. We thank you, praise, and magnify you, and we bow down before you, our Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we will proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able 
to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with unblemished joy. To God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.